What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all ideas centering around history, mythology, philosophy, and how they bubble up into our popular culture. I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. Um, it's a weird time. Things are probably going to get weirder before they get less weird. I've been working from home for two straight weeks. We only leave the house if we need to take a walk to stretch our legs or to get some much needed food items. I imagine most of the people listening to this are in some form of a quarantine or lockdown. And if you're not, it's probably because you work in an essential business. So thank you for doing that essential work. Um, yeah, it's a weird time. It's like we don't really know what sacrifices collectively we should be making. It's like we should be serving something greater, like a, it's the term I'm looking for, the greater good. The greater good. I think this is time for the Midnight Myth to finally roll up our sleeves and talk about one of Laurel and I's both favorite movies, one that we have been wanting to discuss for a very long time, However, it just never really felt like the right moment until now, mid-COVID-19 global pandemic, we want to talk about the Edgar Wright masterpiece, the second of the Cornetto trilogy, Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Derek, you said it's one of our favorites. That's absolutely true. I do think this is a masterpiece and a movie that rewards multiple viewings. So if you haven't seen it, uh, make sure that you watch it before we uh, discuss it. And if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it again because it is richer every time you watch it, even if you've seen it a dozen times. Uh, I kind of got the idea to move this up on our schedule to make sure that we did it now because uh, right after everyone was starting to talk about staying at home, and self-quarantining, um, social distancing, all of that. There were a lot of memes being shared around the internet about Shaun of the Dead, um, where Shaun's plan was to grab Liz, kill Phil, grab mom, come back here, have a cup of tea, and wait for all this to blow over. Or go to the Winchester and have a pint and wait for all this to blow over. And we thought, should we talk about Shaun of the Dead? Is that something that we should do? Um, but we have talked about zombies so much before, and it really just didn't feel like the right 
energy to bring into the podcast right now to be talking about a zombie apocalypse. So what we wanted to do was have a little bit more fun, get really light, but also explore some really interesting philosophical ideas in uh, the comedy of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. So again, I'm super stoked to do this. Uh, I can't wait to get started. Yeah, I mean, the movie came out in 2007, so consider this your spoiler wall, but um, go out and see it. I think it's playing on Stars right now. It's available to rent and buy wherever you're streaming movies um, these days. So go and watch it before you jump in, because this is going to be a holds no bars, uh, no holds barred. Pardon me, no holds barred. You got it. You got Quarantine's there. weird, man. This it is, is weird. You. Nothing yeah. means anything. So anymore. no holds barred discussion on Hot Fuzz. It's definitely not going to be exhaustive. There's a lot of different ways one can analyze and discuss this movie. So we're going to give it the midnight myth treatment. But there's probably going to invariably be things that we left out or things that you might want to hear us talk about or ideas that you might have about it. So reach out to us. Let us know what you think. We're all sitting at home with our iPhones and Androids right next to us. So, you know, hit us up. And that being said, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us, the best place to do so is Twitter because we are always, always on Twitter. Uh, we are at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, and you can head to our website, midnightmyth.com, if you want some extra content. There are a few blogs up there. Uh, you can also find our Patreon link there, uh, which is where you can support us for a small or large monthly donation, whatever you can afford. Uh, and that gives you special perks like bonus episodes and shout outs on the podcast. Um, there's also a link to our merch store if you want to support some fabulous Midnight Myth, Wheel of Ka, whatever merch. Um, we highly encourage you to check that out. Um, and on our website now, there's a new page of featured episodes. So if uh, you are new to the Midnight Myth or you want to go through and find out what our best episodes are, kind of how you can get an idea of what we do here, check out the featured episodes page on our website. Um, we are also still in the middle of our Lord of the Rings reread and podcast series. I think we're going to have our next Lord of the Rings episode either next week or the week after. Um, so hopefully very soon. And we will be drawing the winner of our giveaway, our Lord of the Rings giveaway on our Return of the King episode. So please make sure you head to our Twitter and check out our pinned tweet for uh, information on how to enter that giveaway before it's too late. You'll win two Funko Pops that are Sam and Frodo and you'll win a Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit. So make sure you enter that giveaway before it's too late. And just to be clear, the next episode will be our first of a two-parter on Return of the King. So our next episode will not have the winner of the giveaway. It will be the final episode on Return of the King right? where there'll be a giveaway. Um, yeah, fantastic. And if you want to talk to me, hit me up at Derek Jones 198 at Twitter. That's my Twitter handle. Pretty much always on now that I'm working from home. Um, hopefully my boss is not listening to this. <laughs> no, I'm it's just kidding. Fine. It's I, fine. I mean, I've been very, very, very busy at work, which is... Yeah, me too. It's it's crazy. It's a blessing, yeah. honestly, because I have friends who are not or who are out of work or who are laid off who are in a bit of existential dread from the news while also not having a job to do to distract them is tough. So I'm very happy that I have a very busy at home job right now. Yeah. Super grateful. And just sending all of our love and support to 
uh, anyone out there who is trying to scrape together a living. Um, there are a ton of like online tip jars that you can support for service workers and gig workers. Um, I'll start sharing some of those from our social media as well, because I know some in our community have set those up. If you have the means to support your fellow men who are out on the front lines, who are still working in essential jobs or who are, you know, not sure what, where their next paycheck is coming from, please consider doing that. I just want to say fellow men and women. And those and beyond other. the binary. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, Laurel. She's not a policewoman. <laughs> She's a police officer. <laughs> uh, we are going to do our best to not just quote our favorite lines from this movie. Before we get too deep into it, before we even do a recap, man, I love, love, love this movie uh, so deeply, so completely. The first time I saw it, I watched it with a group of friends. And afterwards, the other friends had seen the movie, so they were showing it to me. They were like, what did you think? And I really wasn't even able to formulate an opinion. I was opinionless. I was blown away. I'd never seen anything quite like it. I do think it is a singularly unique work of cinematic art. It is both a comedy, horror slasher, big budget action movie. Slash cozy whodunit slash uh, buddy cop drama with so much heart and so much genuine emotion in it while also being soulless and fantastic. It, it is just absolutely everything in one movie. It's one of the reasons studying or following the art of cinema in any critical way can always pay off such dividends because of pieces of art like this. It took me two viewings to really figure out where my opinion was on this movie. I had to see it twice because there's so much to it. Um, and I hope everyone out there enjoys this episode. I'm nervous about tackling this one. I hope our Midnight Myth episode does justice to my sentiments and feelings about this particular work of art. But let's do a brief recap before we get too heavy into it. Yeah. So this movie features a uh, Constable Nicholas Angel, a London super cop. He is exceptional in every single way. He excelled in his coursework. He excels in his extracurricular activities. He has the highest arrest record of any other officer in all of London. The only problem is that this comes to the sacrifice of him really not living a full and complete happy life, as all of the other police officers dislike him because he's better than them, and his relationship to the woman he loves crumbles. In order to kind of tip the balance to uh, make the rest of the London police officers not look so bad, they decide to ship him out to a village called Sanford, Gloucestershire. Thank you. I just drew a total mental blank on the name of the village. I but appreciate it's that. In the country is the point. Yeah. And most of the comedy from the first, like, you know, one third of the movie deals with this London badass super cop who is no nonsense, no nonsense, pardon me, everything by the book in a lax country police community where there's not a ton going on. Everyone are a little, they're not urban, they're not intellectuals, for lack of an appropriate term, they're kind of quote unquote hicks. Yeah, the, pretty much the biggest uh, story of the day is that the swans escaped. That's exactly. the biggest police chase he can possibly go on. And he catches someone who steals biscuits from the local supermarket. Yeah. And that's the impressive collar. So in this, a lot of comedic things happen, and Nicholas Angel meets Danny. Danny is the drunken buffoon son of the chief inspector who is paired with Nicholas Angel as his partner. 
in this, Danny is completely enamored by his badassery and is asking him an insufferably large amount of questions about what it's like to be a quote-unquote proper action and shit cop. In this, Nicholas Angel is trying to tell him about being a cop is about procedural correctness, it's about moral authority, it's about preventing crime and not just prosecuting criminals, and Danny's really just kind of into the idea that he can maybe shoot his gun in the air and go, ah. Much like Point Break. Much like Point Break. And uh, that's when things start getting a little weird as a series of murders, we the audience know are murders by a Axeman in a black cloak and hood, but are staged as accidents, starts pitting Nicholas and Danny against the rest of the police force. As Nicholas starts to suspect that it's murder, the other cops just want to believe that it's an accident. All of this culminates after several people do get killed, where Nicholas finds out a group of prominent Sanford citizens in the Neighborhood Watch Alliance have been systematically murdering anyone and everyone that would stand in their way from winning the Village of the Year contest for the greater good. And, you know, they don't want any crusty jugglers. Then we find out that it is the inspector, the chief inspector himself, who is the master architect behind the Neighborhood Watch Alliance and their series of brutal, horrific murders. This puts Nicholas and Danny against the entire town, knowing that they can't allow this group of citizens to be judge, jury, and executioner of anyone that could stop Sanford from winning this seemingly arbitrary award. It culminates in a gigantic action sequence where Nicholas and Danny go through and non-lethally stop, injure, and arrest the entire neighborhood watch alliance. Nicholas decides that he wants to stay in Sanford as the London police officers come back and say, hey, you know, things are kind of out of whack here now that you're not keeping our crime statistic downs. Would you like to come back to London and be, you know, the our, another cop, a London proper cop again? And he says, absolutely not. He's staying here because he finally learned to love someone more than the force, which was his best friend, Danny. Oh, I love it. Well done. Good recap. Actually, uh, official vocab, vocab guidelines say that it should be called the service as the, the force sounds too aggressive. Oh, I love that you ended with that because that's one of my favorite um, favorite pieces of this movie is how much it places uh, power in language in how you choose your words. Uh, so that that seemingly throwaway joke about you know the force and the service, uh, you know, choosing the words that are less aggressive, uh, actually says that like putting these words out. Uh, puts energy out into the world. So let's put the right words out that say that the police are here to serve, not to force. Uh, And I think that is a really good way to understand Nick's character right off the bat. It's really cool. And there's also a multi-layer joke there where, well, that might be very important in a big city like London, where the cops may be viewed as an authoritarian force instead of a community-based service. Once you get to the countryside and in the village, Everybody knows everybody. So whatever you call the cops, they're just going to still be the neighborhood cops. So it, it, on one hand, yes, emphasizes the power of language and the need to have control over what's said and how it's said in order to pro, you know, project a certain image in the world. On the other hand, it's also a joke because it's just like, 
dude, you're in Sanford County, man. Like this is Gloucestershire. Like this isn't London. We can call ourselves whatever we want. Everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Yeah. We're a service for the community and we're all in this together. I love it. Um, yeah. Thank you for recapping it. Uh, you mentioned some of your thoughts about the movie at the top. And I definitely feel the same way about how this movie marries a whole bunch of different genres, a whole bunch of different send-ups, while also being extremely sincere about the central relationship uh, and the relationships between all of the characters. I think it's very genuine in how it handles those, even though it's parody. Uh, it is so packed with reference to uh, cinema and to other genres outside of itself, but then densely, densely self-referential as well which is why I think this movie is so successful on multiple watches is because every single detail that is introduced at any point in the movie is paid off either immediately or several scenes later. So there are just constant callbacks that make it really, really rewarding to watch. Um, I just can't recommend it enough as a, as a rewatchable movie. But to kind of jump into analysis, if that's okay with you, unless you have anything else to add to the recap. No, let's do it. Um, I'd love to start by talking about that central relationship, which is the relationship between Nicholas and Danny. I think as much as this is a send-up of uh, the action genre and the overblown Hollywood blockbuster by Michael Bay or Jerry Bruckheimer or whatever, I think as much as it's one of those, it's also a true love story. Uh, and that's what I want to talk about here, which I, I think could be really fun to talk about how this is, at its heart, the story of a bromance. And there's a lot that we can mine by looking to the history of the bromance in storytelling and how it reaches, I think, one of its greatest cinematic heights in Hot Fuzz. So will you walk with me on the history of the bromance, Derek? Oh, I am, I am hand in hand walking down this history here. Awesome. So there are a few places that I could start. I'm going to try to stay pretty focused with talking about some of the historical and literary um, bromances. Uh, I could start in archaic Greece. I could absolutely start with classical antiquity. Uh, there's one example that a lot of people point to when they talk about homosociality, uh, and that's Achilles and Patroclus from the Iliad. I'm not going to talk about them for one very specific reason, and that's because the thing about Achilles and Patroclus is they were probably lovers. In the earlier tradition about those characters, they're depicted as lovers, and it's only in the Iliad that they're depicted more as friends. I'm more interested in talking about homosociality here, which I'm going to define for our purposes as a relationship between two people of the same sex, particularly men, that is intimate but non-sexual. Way to just, like, tease archaic Greece ancient Greek poetry and talking about Achilles and then pulling that right off the table. I know. I'm so sorry. I know your heart is broken, Derek, but someday we will come back and talk about this relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. But where I want to start um, talking about homosociality in literature is going to be with medieval literature. So I'm going to pull out one example that's actually one of the earliest tales in the Arthurian legend. I believe I have introduced this tale before. It's called Keelhook and Olwen, and it's collected in the uh, 13th century Mabinogian, but certainly from an earlier uh, oral tradition. So this story is about the, uh, the titular hero, Keelhook, learning that he has this prophecy that he's going to marry a giant's daughter. So he goes to Arthur's court in order to seek that destiny and get help winning uh, Olwen, the daughter of the giant. 
So he goes to court and he gets in and he goes to the king and says, hey, King Arthur, my name's Keelhook. Would you please trim my beard? And Arthur says, yes, of course. I happen to have scissors and a comb handy for just such an occurrence that someone would come into my hall and be like, hey, stranger, trim my beard. So the king actually trims his beard in the hall uh, in front of all of the men. And by the end of that experience, by the end of trimming his beard, he's like, wow, Keelhook, I think I love you and I would do literally anything for you. Also, I'm pretty sure I'm your uncle. So it's this really weird episode here in the beginning of this tale that is the intro to Arthur sending all of his men out to do these impossible, dangerous tasks for this person just because they have gone through this very strange ritual of shaving each other in the grand feast hall. Uh, it's an instance of informal homosocial bonding, an intimate act between these two men that is explicitly non-sexual, but that brings them extremely close together. So that's just an example of informal homosocial bonding that I want to think about. Then we have, in medieval history, we can turn to some examples of formal homosocial bonding. So what I want to pull out as this example is what's known as the homage ceremony or the homage ceremony. Derek is genuflecting right now just to uh, just to demonstrate the homage. I'm paying homage to my wife and co-podcast host, Laurel. I appreciate it. So the word homage or homage is French, and it's derived from the French word hum or um, H-O-M-M-E, uh, which is French for man. Uh, so the homage ceremony literally means uh, a ceremony to become one's man. Uh, it's a formal ceremony that's part of uh, the era of feudalism, mostly like the high Middle Ages. Uh, and that's the economic military system that flourished uh, during that time where you would bind a knight or a vassal to a liege lord in service. Uh, the homage ceremony is exclusive. So if you were uh, doing this ceremony with a liege lord, you were their exclusive vassal, their exclusive man, and you could not serve any other liege lords. Uh, so you took this oath that literally means I become your man sworn in military service to you. Uh, part of the ceremony required the vassal to kneel before the Lord to get down on one knee, and then the Lord would clasp the hands of the vassal, give him his new title, and ask him to rise up while holding his hands, placing them symbolically as equals and saying we are bound to one another. If the getting down on one knee sounds familiar... It's because that ceremony, which is specific to feudal relationships between men, is the basis for the modern marriage proposal. So these man-to-man -man relationships were so sacred that the symbols of those relationships were later appropriated to the rituals of romantic relationships. The reason I bring all this up with hot fuzz, these informal and formal homosocial relationships and bonds and the symbols of them, is because I think we see a lot of similar things with Nick and Danny. We see informal bonding and we see formal bonding. And at many points throughout the movie, we see the, the rituals of male bonding associated with the rituals of dating or romance. So, you know, Nick walking Danny home after they've had their first drink at the pub together, there's that awkward moment on your first date. Every movie that you see that's a romantic comedy has this moment where the, uh, the couple are standing on the doorstep, trying to figure out if they're going to have their first kiss, 
trying to figure out if she's going to invite him indoors. And they have that moment too. Nick and Danny have that moment. Do you want to come in for a drink? Do you want to come in and watch Point Break? So I think at many points in the movie, we see these moments. If we look at what the formal uh, you know, relationship bonding moments are, they formally get tied together as partners. Uh, so it's almost like that homage ceremony. They're exclusively tied to one another for this formal relationship, while the informal relationship that's similar to King Arthur shaving his nephew's beard develops alongside with those, uh, you know, sharing a Cornetto bar or watching movies together. Yeah, you know, I love it because the core of what makes this movie interesting, you know, in the very first few moments of the movie, Nicholas is being shipped off to the country. He goes and sees his ex, who is a forensic scientist, um, played by um, Kate Blanchett. Yeah, which under I, a mask, yeah. I did not know until we started researching for this podcast. Wait, you didn't realize that? I did no oh idea my God. that was Kate Blanchett until you and I were researching it. There's also a fantastic Peter Jackson cameo in the beginning of the movie where he's the guy in the Santa costume stabbing Nicholas through the hand. So thought I would bring that up too. And what she says to him is that you just can't switch off. And until you find someone or something that you care more than the force, that you care about more than the police force, that is, you never will. And she's pretty much laying out his character journey right there. Until he loves something more than being a cop, he's never really going to have a happy and healthy life. And it is his relationship with Danny that puts being a police officer in perspective yeah. for him. And it, what's so different and I think uh, subversive about the way that this movie employs that is that, uh, you know, that idea, until you find a person you care about more than your job, you'll never be able to switch off. That is absolutely paramount to all of the action movies, all the buddy cop movies that this is spoofing. Uh, and this relationship between two men is core to movies like Point Break and Bad Boys 2. However... Uh, in a lot of action movies, you'll see the um, the male-female relationship that is barely you know worth anything on on the screen be returned to in the end, or you'll see the uh, the lead character who's told that he can't switch off uh, f- either win back his his woman or find a new woman that uh, he cares about more than his job. So it's rare that you'll have this deep and this well thought out of a, a of a friendship take the place of that romantic relationship to the extent that it does in Hot Fuzz. I mean, it is a trope in a lot of action movies. Yeah. So there's the lethal weapon where it's about just the two relationships. There's um, got, I'm blanking, there's so many more. There's Beverly Hills Cop that has that. Um, There are Bad Boys is another one that has it, that has just a pair of two straight men who their friendship and their relationship is what defines and moves them going forward. And their bond is what ultimately helps them prevail over the antagonist. You know, what I think is interesting is your play on the, the, the combination of the formal and the informal forms of bonding. So in the formal category, we have, they have the same job, right? They work in the same place. Their job is to literally protect and help each other out as they are partners, and sit in the same car, yeah. They sit in the same car. Chase the swan together. When it comes to the thought that maybe Tim Messenger was murdered, and when the piece of the um, church falls and splatters his head, it wasn't just a tragic accident. They are still together, standing in the rain, just making sure the crime, the potential crime scene is preserved. And even when the other um, 
police officers start really mocking and trying to make Nicholas's life a living hell, Danny's like, hey, man, just so you know, that's not me. Yeah, yeah. Just saying, like, I'm not doing it. I'm not encouraging it. I'm not writing you down. And then there's the informal that you mentioned. There is the going to the pub. There is that they both make each other better cops in a certain respect. We first meet Danny, and he's a joke of a cop for the most part. In fact, he's driving horrifically drunk, and Nicholas tries to arrest him when we first see him. By the end of the movie, he is a certified shoot-your-gun-in-the-air-go-R cop. Yeah. He becomes a total badass cop that's able to break open this entire insidious affair with the NWA. His transition from bad cop to good cop comes directly from the, the, the tutelage and the mentorship that Nicholas gives him. However, Nicholas is an incomplete person. He loves his job more than anything. He needs to learn to serve the greater good. Yeah. He needs to be able to be a little laxer in his application of the law. When we first see him and when he is talking to Bottomin, the chief inspector, the leader of the NWA, who's murdering everybody, and he's kind of coming down on him for kicking out all the underage kids. He's like, hey, you know, there's a reason we had, we allow a few underage patrons in the pub in this town, and it's for the greater good. You know, this isn't London. Nicholas responds with, with respect, geographical location shouldn't be a factor in applying the law. And he says, it doesn't matter where we are. The law is the law. By the end of it, we're seeing a way that he is able to make some decisions based upon a more greater good calculus and not just be rigid in the application of the law. And I think he learns that from Danny while Danny learns from them. And together they end up not only just better friends, but better police officers. That's really well said. There's an exchange because it's very clear on the surface that Nicholas is the mentor that he's like, okay, your, your absolute best weapon as a police officer is your notebook and your pen. The pen is mightier than the sword. So here's how to learn, you know, paperwork and the proper procedure, which is what he holds up almost like a God. But there's absolutely this exchange that he has to learn from Danny this, uh, empathy, this uh, entunement with the community and the ability to be flexible and allow, uh, you know, allow the community to flourish in ways that are not totally bound by stricture. And one of the ways this movie flips the script on the cop action movie is that they glorify the idea that nonviolence, non-threatening, I'm not here to kick ass. So when Danny looks at him and goes, I want to do what you do, you know, proper action and, and, S-H-I-T. Did I curse earlier? <laughs> yeah, you did. So then fuck it. Fuck it, yeah. <laughs> this one's going to have explicit. Just so you know, a little inside baseball, Midnight Myth listeners. I've been trying to not curse as much, but since the since we've already opened it up. Yeah, so, you've been doing really well, though. Not on this one. But you got to quote the movie. And if proper action and shit needs to be said, proper action and shit needs to be said. What I love about Nicholas's response is like, you do what I do. The job's not sexy. The job is not running around in the air, shooting guns with high-speed car chases. That might be something you have to do at some time. But as Nicholas says, being a police officer is as much about preventing crime as it is stopping crime. 
But most importantly, it's about procedural correctness in unquestioning moral authority. Yeah. I'd like to break down that quote a little bit. I think Is that okay? Yeah, I think it's core. I think it's a wonderful quote. I would love, love it. What we see in this is we see Nicholas is addressing a group of students. He's been invited to go to the local school and talk about what it means to be a police officer. Like a a typical career day, I'm sure a lot of us had this experience in our younger years where other people from professions like police officers would come and discuss it. Now, it's kind of just inherently funny because saying that to a group of kids is probably going to mean absolutely nothing. Yeah, no, no He's way. way talking over the heads of most of those kids, I would and, imagine. And Danny and Tim Messenger. He's talking over the heads of the adults. And then Danny, you know, gets to ask a question. He's like, is it true that if there's a place where you shoot someone in the head where their head would explode? Just totally subverting the seriousness of that. But I do think it's an interesting philosophical statement Um, That gives us, A, insight into Nick, and B, his insight into what it means to be a police officer. So there are two different, you know, aspects to this statement. First, it's as much about preventing crime as it is stopping crime. I look at that as the non-action hero aspect of that. He's saying being a police officer in this particular police officer, it's not about punishing criminals. It's more about making sure that crimes don't happen. You're trying to protect and serve people by stopping the crime from ever taking place. We see other examples of this in the very beginning opening montage that he establishes a rapport with the the citizens he serves. They get to know him. He gets to know them. That helps them prevent crime to, to stop them from even happening so you don't even have to arrest someone. So it's the non action hero take on what it means to be a police officer which is funny considering that Danny has only the action hero take on what it means to be a police officer. Yeah. So that's part one of that statement. Part two, most importantly, so that's important. He's saying this is more important, what I'm about to say, than the previous statement. It's about, quote, procedural correctness in unquestioning moral authority, end quote. That's a very powerful statement. And that has two parts to it. It has the procedural correctness, and unquestioning moral authority. Right. Let's first examine unquestioning moral authority. I'd like to start with that one, if you'll permit me. Yeah. What does he mean by unquestioning moral authority? Well, morality, as we all know, is the philosophical study of right and wrong. Authority means that you have the ability to enforce these right and wrongs, and unquestioning means your authority is presumed out of the gate. So everyone assumes without question or debate, the police officer is the authority. And where does that authority reside? In their ability to understand right versus wrong. So the morality is linked to the authority, which is linked to the unquestioning. This is a circular form of logic. It's a contained thought where each little piece feeds into the next. And if you pull one piece out, the entire uh, antecedent of the statement logically collapses. For example, if you have unquestioning authority that's not moral, what are you? You're a freaking dictator. Yeah. Right? You're an authoritarian then. If you have moral authority that's being questioned, well, what are you? Maybe you're a philosopher, you're a theologian, but you're not going to be able to adjudicate right versus wrong in that moment. So step one, this circular form of logic, unquestioning moral authority. 
Two, procedural correctness. This is about applying, this is the way I interpret it, about applying the law with perfect bureaucratic um, studiousness, meaning there are policies and procedures, there are laws by which the police officer must follow and must do perfectly. You have to do it with correctness. Whatever the laws are, you cannot deviate from them. They must be done without any error or mistake. This is why he's so keen on the vocabulary guidelines. This is why he is so keen on uh, the paperwork, why he has no problem filling out every little slot. He carries his own pens, which is why after the big battle in the town square, everyone is just sitting there filling out every single form of paperwork because it must be procedurally correct. So if you have this unquestioning moral authority and you're able to adjudicate it, it is standing on the legal pillars of the procedural correctness. And we add all of this up together, we get what could be considered a moral deontological framework. He is advocating for a Kantian system of ethics based upon the rule of common law. So there's a little bit of social contract theory in there and that we are going to govern and organize our society civilly based upon a contract. That contract mandates that we have laws. Those laws will get broken, so there must be a procedure that's followed correctly that is both moral and un unquestioning, unquestioned, and that is a police officer. Nice, right? yeah. So that's how we can understand the philosophy behind Danny. But it's a little more complicated than that because we juxtapose this to the NWA and we start to think that we have a standard moral conflict of people who are willing to sacrifice for the greater good, e.g. utilitarians, people whose morality is about the consequence versus Danny, I'm sorry, versus Nicholas, who's all about the rules and regulations. And they can't be... Um, it can't be ignored and must be proceed, must have procedural correctness at all times. But I don't necessarily think that adequately sums this up. Right. And I want to give out a few textual pieces of evidence here. Because the concept of the greater good is not a philosophical concept that is unique to utilitarians. That means you don't have to be a consequentialist to believe in a greater good and that people should sacrifice for said greater good. That idea is as old as legal systems itself. It's as old as the governing principles around the first ever um, towns and villages and cities and then empires. And so Nicholas demonstrates an ability to understand the greater good from the get-go. The central conflict in the first scene is that he's being sent away. Why? Because he's got to serve the greater good. He's making the other cops look bad. If he stays there... Those cups will look bad. They'll be out of a job. He doesn't want to hurt them, so he accepts his transfer to um, Sanford. Example one, right out of the gate, serving a greater good. Um, then, this is a really crucial point. When he catches the shoplifter in the shop, and he is chasing the shoplifter, as he is running, there's a point where he stops, and he sees the swan, and he sees the shoplifter. 
And both are things that he, by his procedural correctness, has to do something. The shoplifter is committing a crime. They must be stopped and they must be punished. However, there's a missing swan and the swan does also need to be gained and needs to be uh, taken back to the swan owner at the zoo. He's got two different choices in front of him. Do I stop the shoplifter? Do I rescue the swan? And he chooses the shoplifter. And why? Because he recognizes that the shoplifter, stopping the shoplifter is a greater good than rescuing the swan. He's able to make a sacrifice for one for the other because he can't possibly do both. And then even then, that's compounded as he's chasing the shoplifter, they're the kids that are doing graffiti. Yeah. He could arrest, stop and arrest them because they're breaking the law, but he doesn't. He seizes their paint can, throws it at the shoplifter who clunks him on the head, and he arrests the shoplifter. So in two instances in that scene, we see that same supposedly morally rigid character make sacrifices for the greater good. And since he makes those sacrifices, he is able to arrest, arrest the, uh, the perpetrator. Where does all of this go with the NWA? The problem with the NWA isn't that they want to make sacrifices for the greater good. That's not the problem. The problem is how they've defined the greater good. What do I mean by that? Here are a group of concerned citizens that have a vision of what they think would make Stanford great. And that vision is winning an arbitrary award. And they will do anything to win that arbitrary award. If they had put that same level of tenacity and that same level of dedication and effort into, I don't know, making sure there are no poor people in Sanford. Right. You know, then maybe some of their sacrifices would have been worth it. No, you still shouldn't kill people in the, you know, because killing people is still wrong. Killing people is wrong. Yeah, pretty much in any sense of the word. Yeah. But their perversion, their philosophical perversion that puts them in a collision course with Nicholas isn't that they have so fundamentally different moral systems. It's that one has defined a greater good in such an, an absurd and backwards way that it leads to absurd and backward actions to get there, right? If you're saying winning this award's more important than anything else in the world, you're going to do some fucked up things on your way to winning that award, and maybe you'll form a death cult in order to do it rather than if you actually want to serve a greater good in a tangible way, such as reducing crime, well, then you might have, you might have to make sacrifices. You might have to let the swan go. You might have to let the graffitiers go in serving the greater good by stopping the shoplifter because the shoplifter is the more serious event. But when the NWA does is they're murdering people for an arbitrary award that means nothing. I am really glad that you've made this distinction uh, that you have said, okay, this is not actually a fight between someone who cares about rules and regulations more than anything versus uh, an actual community of people who are working for the greater good. Because no, 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 uh, Village of the Year is not the greater good by any stretch of the imagination. And the the, the sacrifices, quote unquote, that they have made to achieve uh, Village of the Year 
it requires them to harm people at every move, even people who are part of their community, like Leslie Tiller. Uh, if, if we can't have her, nobody else can. Uh, it's just completely absurd. Um, and there's this sense that, like, yes, if, if this community organization actually applied this, um, this vision to, like, how do we really become Village of the Year? Uh, you know, we reduce crime, we uh, support education, we uh, make sure that there is no poverty on our streets. We make sure everybody's well fed. We support local businesses. Like those are the ways that you actually become village of the year, whether or not you get a trophy. You uh, invest in your people and in your community and you work to support one another. But instead of that, they say, okay, there's kids drinking in the pub who are underage, dead. There is crusty jugglers and clowns and living statues showing up in the square, dead. There's a shoplifter, dead hoodies, people wearing hoodies, dead. Like, it's just completely insane. Versus Nicholas, who, yes, at first glance, looks like someone who is totally rules-based and uh, does not deviate from these arbitrary rules. He's actually able to let these smaller infractions go as he passes them, realizing that sometimes kids will be kids. Uh, you know, usually you can't just let people drink in the pubs. You really have to be looking out for people. But sometimes kids will be kids and you have to go for the shoplifter. Um, I think his idea of law and his idea of rules is not necessarily that, um, you know, law is the uh, it's the totally perfect, infallible measure and standard that we must always be reaching for. But law is close enough. Laws are put into effect because they are supposed to serve a greater good. Laws uh, are supposed to serve a community in ways that are agreeable to the most people. Uh, it's never going to be agreeable to everyone, but it's as good as we can get. So it is the greater good by definition, if that makes sense. It does. You know, one thing that it resonated to, to when you said that is social contract theory, yeah. which I'm not an expert on it, but I've read a good bit of the Russos and Locks, etc. This came out of the Western European Enlightenment, and this is saying that there is a implicit social contract in how groups of people are organized into societies. And at the core of it are people saying, I'm willing to give up some of my individual freedom in order to be in this society. And based upon that, the society should give something back, whether that is protection from your barbarian neighbors who are going to come and take your women in gold, or whether that's the you know pursuit of individual goals like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we choose to give up some of our freedoms via a social contract to live in a society and the society should provide something back to us because of it. It is a contractual relationship. You only can have a social contract if you recognize an implicit greater good that you're serving. Meaning I'm going to say I'm a little less free because I want to live with everybody and living with everybody means yeah, I'll gain more than I sacrifice. There's a greater good. Yeah, yeah. And we're currently in a bizarre world. And this is why I really wanted to talk about Hot Fuzz, where in particular in America, right now there is a huge debate over what the greater good means. And it's really important. And even though Hot Fuzz is a bizarre, weird comedy, horror, action, romance, everything kitchen sink movie, and it does so on so many levels. The core philosophical debate is how does one define the greater good? When you have a small group of powerful people in a society saying the greater good is this, 
then suddenly the entire society gets organized around that principle. And what if they're wrong, right? Like what if they're absolutely wrong and that's not serving the greater good right now, there's a debate in contemporary American politics happening, whether the greater good is to prevent a virus that has the potential to kill millions of people, preventing that virus from spreading is the greater good or allowing people to go back to work to keep the economy going. And there's a debate over what's the greater good. And like, I'm watching hot fuzz and I'm like, Oh my God, the inspector comes out and says, let's make Sanford great again. It is kind of crazy watching this movie from the two thousands that says those words, which is not like, you know, that movie was made in 2007. So it's not a comment on current American politics, but my goodness, my jaw dropped. Yeah. And because there is a conflict within the social contract of what happens when the, the idea of the greater good is being perverted. And, you know, we have that same debate happening right now over what's the greater good. And the people in charge are going to be able to define that. And we all have to go with what they are saying. And sacrifices then are being made. I mean, there are people making the argument right now that if 2% of Americans die, but a, the stock market bounces back, that serves the greater good. And I'm just like, oh my God, am I taking crazy pills? Are we, Are we really tra- just trying to win village of the year right now? The stock market of the year award? Like yeah. what the fuck is happening? And like hot fuzzes conflicts are like, Oh my God, a lot of these are have a eerie prescient way. And this is all to say, I don't want to tell anyone listening to this, what to think about politics, et cetera. I trust everyone here to of make course, up their own minds. Course. But like when you start perverting the idea of the greater good for a selfish interest. So I had a wife and that wife died horribly. She went insane and murdered herself. She committed suicide and she was dedicated to this award So I'm going to use all of the social authority that I have to make sure that we always win that award to honor her no matter what. And I don't care how many people die in the process. Yeah, you you done fucked up there. And I think that can be easily that that social argument can be easily uh, picked out of that movie and can be placed into arguments I'm hearing from the American right that says, yeah, so it's just a disease that'll kill 2% of the population. Do we really want to not make money? And you're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. It's really, uh, we're, we're kind of in bizarro world right now. What's so, um, I think, interesting and surprising about those parallels is that you, you expect during Hot Fuzz that uh, the community can have their minds distorted this way because they're insular because it's small, because it is isolated. It's not a city like London. It's not incredibly interconnected with the outside world. It is extraordinarily singular in how it interacts. And so everything becomes a sort of echo chamber when everybody knows everybody else and you literally repeat each other's words back to them, the greater good, the greater good. Uh, It's very hard to understand what's going on in the outside world. And so it's unexpected that we would see uh, such crazy parallels to the contemporary world, but I guess it's not so different from modern day social media. I'm not trying to get on a soapbox here. This is just all kind of occurring to me in the moment, but it's just kind of fascinating. It's just fascinating to see 
the, the parallels between these two things. And not something that we expected when we put on Hot Fuzz and decided that this would be our, our discussion for this week. Uh, something that really kind of snuck up on us. Yeah. It's important to note that Nicholas and Danny are not able to take down the NWA alone. They have to convince the rest of the police force. An entire generation, essentially, within this village. And they are all younger than the people in the yeah. NWA um, that they convince. So there's a generational change there. But it also, you know, gives me comfort that eventually people can see the forest for the trees. Yeah. You can only live in denial for so long about what's really happening. There's only so many gruesome, horrible accidents that can occur between, a, but before a police officer will be like, hold on, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just trip and fall on your shears like that. That's yeah. not a way someone accidentally dies. Yeah, this just does not make sense. One other thing that I want to bring in, because uh, we started this by talking about procedural correctness and um, in the face of unquestioning moral authority. And I just want to bring in, obviously the third act of this movie is a big overblown Michael Bay uh, extravaganza of explosions and shotguns and every possible, uh, you know, piece of weaponry you can possibly imagine being played out in this idyllic uh, countryside town. But the entire movie employs these very Michael Bay-esque um, editing techniques and cinematographic techniques. And uh, it does that to emphasize extremely mundane tasks, whether those are the day-to-day -day tasks of living in a village or, um, very importantly, the very mundane tasks of police bureaucracy. So what we were talking about with procedural correctness is how this movie um, really sexifies procedure and sexifies doing things by the book. So every time you uh, hear the click of a pen, there's like this really badass cutting back and forth to, you know, them booking the, the criminals in and filling out the forms exactly right and putting the stamp on the form so that it holds up in court if you have to go there. It turns those tasks that seem so unsexy into these really glamorous action movie moments. And that, I think, is part and parcel of what makes this a great police movie, is that it's able to, even in a funny way, remind us that like being a cop is not about retribution, being a cop is not about blowing things up, being a cop is not about getting revenge or being a badass, it's about doing the right thing. And I think that's a really cool, aspirational uh, way to portray police in the world. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Edgar Wright said in the the making of it that he wanted to do a proper copper movie. Yeah, and he wanted to take he wanted to take the movies back from the gangsters, from like Guy Ritchie and whatever. A um, few other things I wanted to point out. I think there is an interesting meta commentary on the role of cinema, especially in the character Danny, that'd be worth discussing. Yeah, yeah, let's. So Danny kind of understands himself and his role as a cop through the lens of cinematic portrayals of police officers, in particular in the point break bad boys two Ian fashion that he likes watching these action movies where cops are these invincible warriors who go on mayhem, killing the bad guys indiscriminately and are just these like awesome action adventure packed movies. And I think it, in a way Nicholas is, he, he represents that. No, I've done those things. Yeah. Right. I've done all of those things and that's not what this job's about. And they're not fun. And they're not fun. And I think one of the most touching moments that kind of crystallizes 
the difference how they both view being a police officer and how Danny has this overly romanticized Hollywood cinematized, that's not a word, view of being a cop, is when Danny accidentally shoots the doctor at the festival with the air gun. Oh. oh. And I love this scene so much because here is Danny wanting to impress Nicholas, wants to, you know, be a big badass marksman like him. He accidentally shoots the doctor. The doctor needs to be taken away in an ambulance. And like, Danny's just like, I can't believe I shot someone. And what I love about their, and this kind of highlights back to your point about this friendship and love that they have. Nicholas doesn't trivialize that. He, he doesn't look at him and go, dude, it was just an air gun. You didn't actually shoot anyone. Like you would think Mel Gibson would say, yeah. or Will Smith would say in their respective, you know, cop buddy cop movies. He says, you know, it's not something you'll ever get used to. He empathizes with him being like, yeah, you did actually shoot someone. You and I have both shared this together now. And yeah, that injured someone. And yeah, you should feel bad about it. And it helps kind of break down. I think Danny's slightly problematic view of being a cop is about action. And it all comes around full circle in the end when it then suddenly becomes about action. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what I love about this movie. Yeah, but it takes all of those, um, you know, have you ever fired your gun up into the air and gone R? Like, it takes all of that um, sort of silliness from the beginning of the movie and brings it into an extraordinarily justified, really emotionally powerful uh, climax for these characters too. Because uh, obviously Nick and Danny have an incredibly strong relationship and bond after what they've been through together. But Danny grew up in this community. This is the doctor who delivered him. You know, these are the people who raised him and watched him grow up. And this is his own dad who is at the helm of all of this murder and mayhem. And so uh, I, I think it's really well justified through this climax uh, that there is this incredible emotional growth between them. And when Danny actually shoots his gun into the air and, and goes, goes R. R. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> have you ever fired two guns while flying through the air? And they have them firing they, two yeah, guns. Yeah, they do it. Yeah, yeah. Everything pays off. It's yeah. so, so good. All right. What else you got? Um, you know, this is the part where uh, I want to take a leaf out of M uh, from Verbal Diorama's book, because if this was her podcast right now, she would do the obligatory Keanu reference. Um, so if you don't listen to Verbal Diorama, make sure that you do. It's a fantastic podcast that we love very much. And I have to make this reference because Keanu Reeves is indirectly in this movie uh, from the number of times that they reference Point Break to when they actually watch it in Danny's house. Uh, we get a lovely shot of the wonderful Keanu Reeves's face, and I could not let that one stay on the table. Uh, just at this moment, too, uh, I feel like it's a good time to say this uh, This spring, we're going to be sitting down with M from Verbal Diorama and doing a guest spot on her show. So I'm really, really excited for that to come out, and I can't wait to tell you more about that. Um, just a couple of other like sort of fun uh, little things right here. Last week we talked about The Outsider on HBO and the actor who plays Claude Bolton on The Outsider, Patty Considine, is of course one of the Andes in this um, in, in Hot Fuzz. And I honestly think my favorite part of Hot Fuzz is anytime the Andes are on screen. Everything they do is just comedic gold. I, I can't get enough of them. And I, I want to see 
like a buddy cop movie that's just the Andes, a spinoff or a show of them. Yeah, I just have to give so much respect. So Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg wrote this movie together. Edgar Wright is also the director. Um, there's the Cornetto trilogy, which is Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's Ending. And I mean, everything Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg do, I just tend to be a really big fan of. And it, my relationship of knowing them as storytellers, for me, it started with Hot Fuzz. Um, that was the first time I was introduced. I saw that before I saw Shaun of the Dead. Oh, cool, yeah. And, um, you know, it's just a really, really fantastic piece of artwork to lace in all of the different elements that they do. We could analyze this as a murder mystery. We could analyze this as an action movie. We could analyze this as a bromance. We can analyze this as a treatise on moral philosophy and the social contract. And there are so many other ways that you could... Um, you know, take a look at this movie and discuss and talk about it. And, you know, you can apply it to modern political problems. That's how relevant it can be and is. And it's just an amazing work of art worth celebrating, worth discussing. And uh, I just loved talking about it. Do you have a favorite scene or character or bit or joke that you want to share? One little thing, and I, I don't know if it's my favorite, but since you asked, it just popped into my head. When Nicholas is chasing the shoplifter and he makes a turn and he goes, oh, you mothers, you know that in the standard cop movie, it would be you motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's, oh, you mothers, because Nicholas doesn't curse. And he turns and he sees a whole group of mothers. And it's yeah, just pushing, like, pushing trolleys. Yeah, it's just so silly and just so fantastic that a bunch of mothers are standing in his way. So he goes, Oh, you mothers. Oh my God. I love that. That's a great joke. I would say other than any time the Andes are on screen and that wonderful shot of them getting into Nicholas's face and sort of coming back into the frame and out. Um, I would say anytime, uh, the Swan shows up, I am really into it. I think those Swan jokes are just extraordinary. They land so well. It's so dumb. Uh, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, totally agree there. And uh, I love the little Sanford town. And when uh, Skinner falls on it and he's just like, oh, this really, really hurts. Yeah, James Bond is whining. <laughs> yeah. It's so sweet. Oh, man. Uh, other just fun things. Uh, the actor who plays uh, the Hound is in this. Yeah, he's Lurch. Yeah, going around doing his yerps. Um this is going to devolve into us just doing bits from it. So Absolutely. let's save everyone that. We'll I just that thought it offline. was worth, you know, a, a comedy. We talk comedy and I feel like we should reference some of the things we like the most. Yep. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, this has been a wonderful discussion. I am so glad that we were able to extract some philosophy from this goofy all out balls out comedy. Um, and you know, to kind of wrap up the ideas of the bromance, uh, you're a man, right? You, you've had a bromance before, right? Several. I think at the heart of this movie, this is about love. This is about friendship. This is about characters who never would have been in the same room together, um, you know, let alone become best friends who learn to care about each other more than anything in the world. Uh, and I think that is a really cool uh, and really well-earned uh, storyline between these two characters that is born in these sort of ancient and medieval ideas and helps them both work out this philosophical conundrum together that they come together, they learn to care about each other, and they can save the world or at least save their village. 
And until next time, everyone, be kind. Be kind. The great are good.